Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to see that so many of you were able to, to make it to the worship service on Christmas Eve. Today, we're on part three of our Advent series, and we're attempting to at least, at least incompletely, answer the question, why did Christ come? Okay, why did Jesus come? And so while the kids are finding the bingo pictures here, um, well, I just noticed I didn't do any transi- a fade transition this time. That's going to look really weird. If you can add a fade transition in between, all you got to do is click it and click apply to all. If not, no problem. Okay, so it's going to look really weird. Anyway, so it'll make it really easy to find the pictures, though. Um, I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to a very well-known passage from Luke chapter 2. Okay, Luke chapter 2. We were there this morning. We read the first seven verses. We're going to look at verses 8 through 20 uh, this morning. How many of you have ever seen the, the original Charlie Brown Christmas special? Okay, if you haven't, you should. You need to. All right. Uh, some some of you probably, if you've been to Crossroad for a few years, you probably wonder why I bring that up literally almost every year. <laughs> uh, sometimes I show the clip, and I just I, I think it's it's amazing. And as goofy as this sounds, I still I get I get misty sometimes. You know, listening to that with Linus's high pitched, sincere voice as he's just quoting, and he's quoting from the King James. You know, just. It's such a good scene, and this, this passage really is a, a good summary of, of what Christmas is all about, you know? Can anybody tell me what Christmas is all about? You know, and then Linus goes, and he does. He comes back and says, well, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. It's such a wonderful, such a wonderful thing to see on TV. Um, anyway, the, the whole Bible reveals a lot more about the advent of Jesus and why the Word became flesh and what that means to us and what it tells us about God. But the big picture is evident from this passage. And it's wonderful to me that ever since 1965, anyone who watches a Charlie Brown Christmas is reminded that God the Son took on human form, became a baby. I really hope every single family in this room reads the Christmas story in your home before you allow your kids to open gifts. If you don't, have that as a tradition, I encourage you to make it a tradition. That way, that's one way we remind each other that presents are not the most important part of Christmas. And, and for that matter, even being together, I mean, it's very important, but that, that is not the most important part. It's commemorating the fact that the Word became flesh. That is a glorious thing. Now, with that in mind, let's, let's pray, and then uh, we'll begin to read our passage. Father God, I thank you so much for this church body. I thank you, Lord, for being able to visit with so many people yesterday and just to experience praying with so many brothers and sisters. Father, I'm encouraged at where you are taking us, Father. You are, um, I see people growing. Lord, I ask that as we grow, uh, that we grow in, in stature before man and before you, just as Jesus did. Lord, there are probably some people here that are as fresh a Christian as as Jesus was in the manger, a baby. And Father, I pray that you open hearts and minds today to be receptive to your word and to understand just how deep and how beautiful this mystery is that the word became flesh. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, so starting in Luke chapter 2, verse 8, it says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch, over their flock by night. Now, according to crosswalk.com, this, this was a common practice for smaller flocks 
to get together at night because the shepherds would be kind of separate during the day. They'd bring the flocks together at night when they weren't feeding so that the, the sheep could bed down together. They could kind of take turns staying awake and watching. It made their job a bit easier. Um, but what's kind of funny to think about is the fact that, you know, to us, this is, we've heard this story so many times probably, but they had no idea whatsoever what they were about to experience. You know, for these shepherds, they, they likely had no expectation whatsoever that God was going to reveal his greatness to them. You know, they probably expected that day to go the same as every other day had for the past several decades and would for the next several decades, right? And so, based on the humbleness of their circumstances, I'll bet they also thought, why are they talking to us? <laughs> why are these angels coming to us? We don't deserve this. We're going to talk about that later. But So it says, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Yeah, I'll bet, right? It's interesting how the first thing that often comes out of a, an angel's mouth is what? Fear not. Right? Speaking of that, the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I will bring you good news. Oh, excuse me. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Um, there's some really quick explanation that it might be helpful if you didn't grow up in church. Uh, you may not have heard this. They, they didn't have, obviously, nice, sterile, warm, birthing rooms back then. You know, a baby would be born wherever the baby was born. You know, they, they would, they would uh, wrap it in, in strips of, of rags, basically. They didn't have those, you know, those real cute little blankets with the pink and blue foot on them, and they put the little windsock on the baby's head. I don't know. But uh, it, they, they would take this newborn baby. Before they'd wrap it up, they would rub it with salt a lot of times. Because even though they didn't understand, you know, germ theory, they still understood that that in some way kept children alive. And so they would rub them with salt, they would wrap them. Uh, they didn't know the mechanics behind it, but they knew it worked. So they would wrap them in these strips of cloth, they would kind of tightly bind the baby's limbs in so it felt comfortable like it was in the womb. Um, but it wasn't the swaddling clothes that made the sight of this particular baby so unusual. It was the fact that he had been laid in a manger, Okay. And it is far more unique, it's, it's, I mean, totally unique, that Christ himself was born. You know, I mean, can you imagine how it must have felt, I guess, for, for these shepherds to hear this news? As Jewish men, certainly, they had grown up with this expectation that the Messiah was going to come. And they were wondering when this was going to happen. And now they have their answer. And we could, we could spend a whole lot more time parsing this text, but today I want to focus on the fact that we are, we are given reminders in this little section of, of our main points from the previous messages uh, in these series, the, the two sermons before. First, we're reminded that Jesus came to reveal God's upside-down kingdom. You remember we talked about that. We saw a couple of weeks ago, God prioritizes differently from this fallen world. You know, the, the things that we consider of great value are often the very things that God doesn't care about at all, that he gives no importance to wealth or power or status or charisma or, or great you know, natural skill. Those things actually get in the way sometimes of God's glory. He prefers to work through those who are, are physically unimpressive because that is when his influence shines the brightest. Well, this, this story is, is a great reminder of that because we see God revealing his glory to the least of these so to speak. 
You know, shepherds were not high on the social totem pole in Israel. They're probably about as blue collar as it gets. If you weren't a bond servant, you know, being a shepherd was about as, you know, it, we would probably consider it something, um, you know, that, I don't know, a person that only cleans toilets, maybe. I mean, it was, it was which there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. Just, I want to make sure everybody understands that. No, I want, you need to know. That's totally fine. Uh, it was once said, you know, it doesn't matter what you do. If you're a street sweeper, be the best street sweeper you can be, you know. It's whatever it is that you have to do that God put your hand to, you should do that well. But shepherds were not considered like, ooh, they're a, you know, they're a doctor, they're a blah, blah, blah. Um, they were so low, they're almost lawyers down there. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Anyway, and yet God himself certainly seems to have a soft spot in his heart for shepherds. I mean, give it a quick perusal of the scripture. If you go through, you see, it, this, if, if you're paying attention, you'll see this. God took David to be the king of Israel from a lowly position as both a youngest son and a shepherd boy. And in the book of Ezekiel, God says he will shepherd his own people. Because their shepherds aren't doing so good a job. And then in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the what? The good shepherd. Yes, elders are even referred to as shepherds in the New Testament. That's literally one of the names that's used for, for elders. In fact, even the word pastor comes from a similar word for pasture. There's still a, somebody colored me a picture a while back that said, you know, we love you, pasture Mark. <laughs> it's in my office. Um, I, just, I, I think it's interesting for us to, to think about how much God uses the visual of shepherds and sheep. And here we also see that you know, God not only raises up the lowly, it is, it is to a, a group of the least that God reveals the glorious nature of His amazing plan. We also see God reveals His glory through the least. Okay, To the least and through because remember, Jesus, Jesus is the only baby in all of history who's been able to choose his own parents. I mean, that's pretty amazing if you think about it. He, he was able to choose his own birthplace. He was able to choose his own timing. If you were in charge of determining those things for yourself, how would you do it, you know? Would you decide to be born in a stable? Would you maybe... Meh. But you've maybe picked different circumstances. But the king of the universe, okay? The one through whom, the word through whom all things were created, chose, he made the decision to humble himself by not only becoming part of his own creation, but also he chose to be born in a stable to peasant parents rather than, you know, a warm castle surrounded by attendants and glitz and whatever they have in castles. You know, this fits right in with the humble character of God. Isaiah 57, 15 says that, that God loves the least and he desires to bless them. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly. And revive the heart of the contrite. So, so that's amazing. That's who our God is. That's his personality, his character. He roots for the underdog. But our second reminder is this. Last week we talked about the fact that Jesus came to show God's faithfulness. You know, based on what the angel says, we can see that's on display right here. You know, God's, God's righteous, humble, unchanging character is revealed beautifully by the fulfillment of his promises. 
comes, these things come to pass because of his faithfulness. And so his faithfulness is glorified when he fulfills these promises. Because first of all, we see there's a Savior born that day, right? Which fulfills God's promise to save his people. This is one of the most important and well-documented promises throughout the whole Bible. We see it first in Genesis 3.15. The seed of woman shall crush the head of the serpent. We see it again in Genesis 12. Remember where Abram tells, excuse me, God tells Abram, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And then it, just, it keeps going. And there's a, there's a lengthy, detailed description of the passion of Christ, of his atoning death in Isaiah 53. Again, seven centuries before Christ was born. But one of the most relevant passages that's directly connected to this one is found in Micah chapter 5, which Matt read earlier. And this one, it might have been resonating in the shepherds' minds when they heard this. You know, but, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is of old from ancient days. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. There's that word again, peace. It's, it's such a wonderful word, and it, and it ties right into the, the sermon subtitle, which you may or may not be able to read from, from back there. We're going to get there uh, to peace. Anyway, God's faithfulness is shown through the fulfillment of his promise to save his people, but also in that he would save his people through the house of David. You know, be completely frank, that, that is not spelled out in these verses, but it is, it is reference to the fact that the child is born in the city of David, right? I mean, Bethlehem literally means house of bread. That, that's the house where, where King David was born and where King Jesus was born. You know, and last week we, we looked at 1 Chronicles 17. Today we're going to revisit God's promise in a different spot. It's recorded in 2 Samuel 7. The Lord told David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, he says, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And then once again, there's allusions here to both uh, Solomon and also uh, to, to Christ in this promise. He says, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father or as a father and he shall be to me a son. Some of you guys know, um, sorry, that's making a lot of noise, so let me fix it here real quick. Some of you guys know I got to, I got to take part in an interview uh, with a filmmaker from, for a documentary about the Gospels and the lineage of Christ. I got to do that last week. It was, it was really, really cool. One of the neat things I got to talk about with him is the fact that, that both Mary and, and Joseph's lineages converge at King David. One of them comes from, I forget which, I should probably know that, pastor. Uh, one of them comes from Solomon's line, the other comes from one of the other sons. But they, Nathan? I don't know, okay, so. <laughs> cool, well, they, they converge at, at King David. You can look that up, why it's really good about that. He'll help me out. Um, I, I just think that's, that's an amazing and powerful testimony to God's ability to be faithful to himself. When he makes a promise, he keeps it. And the Lord keeps those promises. So we're going to keep reading. 
And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Okay, now first of all, imagine you're a shepherd, okay? If it helps you to close your eyes, do that as long as you don't fall asleep. <laughs> imagine you're a shepherd, you're, you're on the hillside at night, 2,000 years ago, you're enjoying the crystal clear evening. They didn't have all that light pollution that we have today. So they could see the glory of the sky above them. And they're, they're probably lying there listening to the sounds of, of maybe the, the sheep, you know, the, the, the ewes finding their, their, their lambs and bedding down for the evening, maybe the crackle of the fire. And then all of a sudden, you're surrounded by this incredible brightness. And the next thing you know, there's this terrifying angel telling you, first of all, not to be afraid, and then announcing that something you've been waiting for your entire life is happening. Think about this. What's going on inside you? Besides total confusion. <laughs> but what's going on inside you? What kind of joy? And then, on top of this, you know, as if that wasn't enough to freak you out, suddenly there's this, this whole army of angels. And they're shouting this good news. They're proclaiming this good news about what God is doing. Thankfully, they're, they're on your side, you know. The fact is, what they're proclaiming is essentially that God is on your side. Let's take a, a second to look at the theme of today's message. Why, why did Jesus come, part three, to spread the good news of peace? What is the good news of peace? What specifically are we talking about here? You know, the, the word the angel spoke that is translated in Greek in our, in our uh, Greek Bible, so it's in our New Testament, which is translated from Kwane Greek. That is the, the Greek word, it's hard to pronounce, it, it, it's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess it up, but it's, it's euangelizomai. <laughs> it's a big word, but it sounds very similar to the English word that we get from that root, which is evangelism. And it's also where we get our word gospel. Now, most of you probably know that you will not attend a service at Crossroad. Uh, if I'm in the, in the pulpit, you're going to hear the gospel in a sermon. Okay? That's because the gospel, the Bible tells us, is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. That's what Romans 1.16 says. Okay? So this is, this is where the sermon, any sermon, derives its power. It's not the presenter. Okay? You know that, right? I mean, friends, a, a, a person could preach a, a self-help message. That's not going to save anybody. Behavior modification doesn't get anyone into heaven. Okay? On the other hand, a message of inclusiveness at the expense of truth is heresy. That will not redeem a sinful soul. Only the gospel is really the good news of peace, which saves. But how? How does it save? And, that's, and what does this message have to do with peace? That's what we're going to talk about, okay? So let's take a look at what the angels say. They kind of make a, a three separate points here, all right? First, they ascribe glory to God, referring to him as the highest, right? And then they proclaim that there is peace on earth. And then they specify that this peace is among those with whom he, God, is pleased. I want us to take a, a few moments to unwrap this gift, okay? This is powerful. First, I want us to remember this magnificent statement this is right on the heels of their proclamation 
of the birth of the Lord's Christ. So the last sentence that we, we have here, that is intimately connected with what came before. By giving glory to God in the highest, the angels are honoring the fact that the Lord is the provider of salvation for his people. Okay? The Lord is the provider of salvation for his people. We might even argue that they are reminding us of the uniqueness of God's kingdom and his faithfulness, just like we discussed earlier. Now, of course, those of us uh, who are under the new covenant, we recognize that the salvation of God means even more than the Jews understood it to mean, right? They were expecting an earthly king. They thought someone was going to come and reign in the same way David did, with the same power, the same glory and authority, crushing Israel's enemies underfoot and uniting the, the kingdom under his throne. But God's plans were a whole lot bigger than that. Quieter at first, too, but bigger. His salvation was extending far beyond the borders of Israel and, and to a, a population far larger than simply the Jewish people. But anyway, one thing at a time. The shepherds, they didn't know all this yet, okay? And so they only knew that the Lord had promised to send his Messiah. And according to the angels, it was happening right now. <laughs> so they're excited. They're filled with joy. But what about this peace on earth? What, what could that be referring to? I mean, clearly it's not a reference to having peace on the outside because the result of this one result of this birth was the murder of every child in Bethlehem under the age of two, right? In fact, in Matthew 10, 34, this isn't in your, your bulletin insert if you want to just jot down the, the reference. Matthew 10, 34, Jesus says, he did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And then he goes on to talk about how there's going to be division in one's own home, you know, the, what, what the household of faith was going to cause in the human household, right? There, so, so how did the coming of this baby mean peace? Well, it comes back to the fact that he is the means of salvation that has made reconciliation available with God. There was not peace between man and God. In order to understand this, we have to understand, we have to grasp why it's necessary. All throughout God's word, we, we see that even God's people, even, even those that he has called his own, have an inherent bent towards seeking after their own desires rather than serving God. So in other words, the, the, the sinful nature, that's, that's the phrase the NIV uses. It's translating the word sarx in Greek, which is flesh, okay? But sinful nature, I think, is a pretty good translation of the idea. The sinful nature of human beings, which we both physically and spiritually inherit uh, from Adam, that leads to the inevitability of sinning against God once we are capable of making a choice to do so. By nature, we resist the Lord. We, we try to place ourselves on the throne of our hearts, saying, in effect, not thy will, but mine be done. The scripture is clear. Human beings become enemies of God due to our sinful nature and the hardness of our hearts. But as the old song goes, God will make a way where there is no other way. You know, in, in his abundant mercy, God chose to provide an avenue through which people can be forgiven our sins and our rebellion, and we can be brought into relationship with him. And this is something only God can do, because people, we are incapable. I hope you understand that. We are incapable on our own of getting to God. So what is the way by which God chose to reconcile mankind unto himself? By the precious blood of a spotless lamb. 
It's through the, the man that this God child would become that, that reconciliation is made available to all in Christ, but only by faith. This baby whom the Bible teaches was fully man and fully God was born without the imparted nature of Adam's sin, which is completely unique since the dawn of creation. Okay? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he was without sin. And that means he was not only born without the same sinful propensity, he also consistently chose 100.000 for infinity percent of the time. He chose not to disobey God the Father. There was never anything that Jesus didn't do that he was supposed to do, and there was never anything that Jesus did that he was not supposed to do. And while the rest of us have at some point inevitably said, not thy will, but mine, Jesus always said, not my will, but thine. And he said that in the Garden of Gethsemane. He lived a completely sinless life. It fits right in with your communion meditation, man. I'll tell you what. God, I love how God works this stuff out. He lived a completely sinless life, and that is the only possible way that he could become the atoning, perfect sacrifice for the sins of mankind. And that, friends, that's why he died in, in excruciating pain on a Roman cross, so that God's holy, righteous character could be satisfied that justice had been met. Because we deserve that. We deserve that punishment. This, this was not a failure. This was not a mistake. It wasn't plan B. It was exactly what had been God's determined path of salvation since the foundation of the world, according to Revelation 5. So, so this, this one atoning death brought peace between God and man where there had once been enmity. By substituting Christ's death in our place, God is able to forgive our sin while still being true to himself. Scripture says he is both just and the justifier. And we know that this means, this means of forgiveness. We know that it was effective. I say, well, how do we know? Because Jesus also rose from the grave. You know, because of his sinlessness, the Father received his offering and then raised him up from the dead to show that he had successfully completed his mission in providing salvation for God's people. And even now, he is interceding. He is, as it says in Scripture, he is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. I think that's so powerful. These, these are the wonderful, precious doctrines of the Christian faith. The death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, according to Scripture, they are the good news. That he did this for our sins. That, that's what 1 Corinthians 15 refers to as the good news. But they must be received by faith. Which brings us to the very important question, what is the right response to this? Okay, now, now that we know, we, we know what God has done, which not one single person in our current story understood at the time. I think that's one of the things that's so fun about this. Now that we understand this, how do we respond to the incredible grace of God? And I, I think that, that we can get the answer to that, at least to some degree, by, by reading on. So, verse 15. Uh, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And before we break this down, I, I, there's a couple of interesting things about this. 
First of all, have you ever thought about what it means when it says, and then the angels went away from them up into heaven? Like, did they just like fly up and just keep going up? Or did they you know, fade into some spiritual dimension? I, I, the latter actually makes more sense to me. But I, I don't think angels or demons are very far from us at any given time. Just for the record. But, but the, whole, the thing that's really interesting to me is that apparently the whole group went. I mean, you gotta, surely these guys relied on their flocks, right, for their livelihood. I mean, don't you think their reputation as shepherds could have been affected by leaving their whole group in the middle of the wilderness by themselves? Are y'all with me? Okay. There's a lot at stake with leaving their sheep to fend for themselves, but they didn't seem too worried about that. They realized that there was something far more important going on. You know, the sheep could wait. They had heard the Messiah had come. So, so from their reaction to the good news of peace, I, I think we can learn at least four things. Okay, well, we're going quick, so stick with me. First, in order for any of the rest of this to happen, we must believe the good news. First and foremost, you got to believe the good news. And on this side of the cross, that means a person must place their faith and their trust in who Jesus is and what he did, which is what God did through him. Okay, This, this is the God-ordained way by which we are released from both the penalty and the power of our sins. However, as we we're about to see, this belief in the good news doesn't occur in a vacuum, okay? These shepherds didn't just, you know, look at each other and go, well, that was weird, <laughs> and then, you know, get back to their evening as though nothing had happened, right? No, no, in their excitement, they ran over hill and dale to see this promised sign of their newborn king in a manger. I mean, wouldn't that be the appropriate response? I mean, if you, if you believe something truly amazing and wonderful, then, then don't you want to go and be a part of that if you can? Of course you do, Ex experientially. Okay, we can all understand that believing something leads to specific actions. This is very much in line with the biblical teaching that a person who is born again through faith in Jesus Christ experiences a change of heart, a change of mind, and a change of trajectory. They turn from sin and turn to God. This is revealed through the whole New Testament. Okay, So if you have placed your faith in the good news, the very next step is to come and experience Jesus for yourself. Now, sometimes I get really irritated when people state that Christians have blind faith. That, what an incredible misunderstanding of why we believe what we believe. I mean, the Bible even commands us both, both implicitly and explicitly, to see for ourselves. You know, Psalm 34 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. When the first disciples asked Jesus, Hey, hey, Rabbi, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you'll see. And, and even in, in that, that's John 139, by the way. Listen, Christ himself invites you, invites us. Come be a part of what's happening. Come observe. Come experience. One of these days, I, I, honestly, I hope to do a whole message on come and see because there's so much involved in that. But for today, let's, let, let's just grasp the fact today that God wants us to experience him. Okay? Not just with, you know, mental assent, like let's check this box, check this box in our belief system, but with real, actual, living faith. The Bible indicates that there are things that eventually and inevitably, 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 thank you, that, that, that come from uh, come, or come along with saving faith. Like repentance, 
which means turning from sin and turning to God. Obedience, which we believe is evidenced initially with confession and with baptism. God commands both of those. Um, but if you're here this morning and you've never really come unto and experienced Jesus, I hope that your mind will be made up to do so. Because he's, he, he's like nothing and no one else. Let's keep reading. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. I'll bet she did, right? Like mamas do. You know, some of y'all know what we're talking about here. We, we treasure things that our children will never remember doing. Some of you guys are, are pretty far up there, but you still remember things from way back. I'm not saying that to be mean. <laughs> I'm saying you, 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 look at your, you look at your adult child and you go, I can't believe it wasn't that long ago. But they were just you know, flexing in swim trunks. <laughs> you just can't believe it. Anyway, we treasure things our children won't remember. Of course, that's not the point. I want you to notice what the shepherds did. They didn't just come in, look, and go, mm, yep, and then walk away, right? No, they, they made known all that had been told them concerning these things, concerning Jesus. And we are likewise called to share the good news with others. Should we be ashamed of our closest and most intimate relationships? Hopefully, no, thank you, hopefully not, you know? I mean, how many of us are embarrassed to tell others about our spouse? Shannon, keep your hand up, you know? How many of us are embarrassed to tell others about our spouse? Hopefully not. We tell people about our spouse because we love them and we think they're awesome. And even if they're sometimes a little less awesome, we still love them, don't we? We still tell people about them. Is there anything wrong with God? What are we ashamed of? Sorry if I'm shouting. What are we ashamed of, friends? Why are we afraid to tell people about you? Know, we, we tell people about our, our best friends. We tell people about our children. These, the people that we love, we are proud of them. We're proud to talk about them, to share about them. So why would it be any different with our Lord and Savior? I mean, is it because we're afraid we'll be accused of having an invisible friend? If so, so what? You know, uh, Jonathan Knox, you guys know him. Some of you know him. Um, I used to be his youth pastor. He's a young pastor now. He... He, he said that when somebody tries to tell him that God's not real, that's like them telling him his wife's not real. He's like, I know she's real because I know her. I know her. You can tell me she's not real all you want, but I know her. I've had, I've had friends joke with me because, you know, I, I'm a little bit more of a social buffalo and Shannon's a little bit more reserved. And so I get out there and, and I've had a couple of friends be like, I'm not sure if I really believe you have a wife, but they're just kidding because they know I have a wife because they hear how I talk about her. Because they can observe my life and say, clearly you have a wife. You know, except how you dress and do your hair. <laughs> they, they can see that I have a wife. They understand that. It, it's not like they, they just don't. Because she's real to me, whether they know her or not. I can tell you that no one in their right mind is going to doubt that I have a wife or that Jonathan Knox has a wife even if they not personally met her, because, because how a husband lives ought to be proof that he has a wife, and how a wife lives ought to be proof that she has a husband. And, and guys, this is, how, this is how our lives ought to prove the existence and the goodness of God. 
People should be able to look at us and go, God clearly exists. Because they wouldn't be like this otherwise. Christ must really be the Savior. Because otherwise these people wouldn't forgive their enemies and love them. They wouldn't help the needy. They wouldn't, you know, the th- all these things that we're supposed to do. I hope you're living that kind of life. I hope that people can look at you and see Jesus in you and, and know there, there just can't be any doubt. There's something they have I don't have. We're going to end with this. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So our job, brothers and sisters, is to give glory to God by believing and praising and living according to the truth that he's revealed in us. And that, that, that's our job. That, that is the chief end of man, according to the greater you know, Westminster Catechism, which I realize is not scripture, but it was thought through by a lot of really, really smart theological dudes. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's pretty awesome. That's a good call. And listen, on the eve of Christmas Day, when we celebrate the Word made flesh, what is the greatest way that we can glorify God? We can live for Him, don't you think? We can thank Him for His incredible gift by offering ourselves as a gift back to Him right now. Maybe this morning you've never gone through some of the steps that you know, that the Bible has commanded you. If, if you don't believe in Jesus, you need to believe, first of all, okay? <laughs> that, that's, you can't do anything apart from that. Jesus said, you can do nothing apart from me. But if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible's very clear. You need to profess that. You need to turn away from your sins. You need to be immersed according to Scripture. And if you've done those things and you go, you know what, I, I, just, I need prayer, I'm struggling. We're here for that. We're here to pray for you. And you know, if, if you're like, I've been going here a while, or twice, whatever, you know, uh, and, and I just want to be a part of a church body, um, we encourage you to, to join. We, we want you to be here, not just um, because you make us stronger, but because we make you stronger. God is working through this church. I think we should pray. Let's close with that. Lord, um, I pray for anybody in this, that's here this morning. God, I know I've spoken to some people um, previously this week, and, and Father, I know that there's things happening and you're doing stuff, and God, it's, it's stuff that you're going to do because you're awesome. Um, but I pray, Father, that um, if there's anybody here that, is, uh, that's, that this morning is just moved by the word, God, not, not by the presentation, but by the word itself, by the truth behind it, Father. I pray that you might prick their hearts. I pray that you might draw blood, Lord, for the sake of of, of bringing that person to you. It is through the blood of your son that was poured out so liberally, Father, on that cross and on that road. It's through that that you brought us to you and, and you made this incredible sacrifice. And Father, I pray that there's no one here that is uh, lacks the courage or, or the conviction to walk according to your word. I thank you, Father, for this church body. And I ask, Lord, that uh, as we go through the rest of this afternoon, Father, not not just um, the invitation time that we're about to have, but as we go through the the whole rest of this day, that we're going to go worship with people over at Anthology. We're going to get together, many of us, and worship again tonight, Father, as 
as a group, we just pray that we honor you with our lives and that people will, will see the fire that, that you place in us here, that we carry that with us, and that people will respond to it, not to glorify us by any stretch, but just to glorify you. Like John the Baptist said, may we grow less and you grow greater in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.